right into it. Uh, today's pa uh, this panel, uh, panel number five, is uh, creative investment structures, co-GP, seed, anchor investors, JV, and other innovative approaches to closing better deals. Um, so for our three panelists that we have here right now, I'm going to give them uh, about a minute and a half to two minutes to do a quick introduction. Spoke to some of you briefly before our panel, so uh, excited to be interviewing you guys today. Um, but, uh, but let's start uh, with you, Mr. Senior. Hello, my name is uh, Yaniv Sneor. I'm one of the co-founders of Mid-Atlantic BioAngels, which is a life science angel investor group. Um, our group started when we realized that people who are early stage startups that are looking for funding in life sciences, specifically therapeutics, devices, diagnostics, uh, unless they're talking to investors who understand the field, it's really very difficult to raise money. Um, and so we, uh, our membership are all physicians or current or past pharma execs. Um, we look at opportunities all over the world. We do our own due diligence. We invest our own money, uh, again, all over the world. And our membership requires people to work. They have to show up to a certain amount of meetings. They have to participate or lead due diligence. And they have to invest a certain amount of money on an annual basis. Um, we invest both as individuals as well as we formed pools of uh, folks in the, in the group that, uh, and those pools get voted on. And now we just started a sidecar fund that basically if we put our own money into a deal after doing diligence, the sidecar fund, which is for non-members, gets to co-invest with us. So if people who don't have the expertise or the time or whatever it is to be members or to be doing evaluation of life science opportunities, which could be difficult, um, they get to go into the deals with us on the same terms as us. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Juan? Yes. Hi. Good to meet you. My name is Juan Li Zhu. Um, I'm here really under two capacities. Um, I've been a venture capital investor for nine years with a firm called Fairhaven Capital, uh, which has deployed about $400 million into early stage technology startups, mostly focused on software. Uh, Boston-based uh, venture firm. Uh, in parallel to that, I also founded and run an investment network for MIT, so I'm uh, in some way representing the university. We're part of the Alumni Association, and we've gathered about 800 or so MIT alums that are accredited investors, including about a dozen venture firms run by MIT alums, and uh, aggregated their expertise um, and the network to help MIT-affiliated startups, meaning startups founded by MIT alum, faculty, and students, and we've been running this organization for four years and, and have um, invested in about 80 MIT-affiliated startups across technology and life sciences domains. Uh, this network has now grown to several regional chapters in uh, San Francisco, Boston, New York, and we just launched a DC chapter about two weeks ago. Um, my motivation, uh, and I think one of the reasons why I'm on this panel, is I'm actively thinking about ways to combine those two parts of my world. Uh, how do we create a new model for early-stage venture capital to access the top startups and innovation of the best universities in the U.S. Fantastic, thank you. Carlos? Hi, my name is Carlos Emery. I'm, I'm a little bit more boring than you. Uh, I do real estate. I manage the real estate silo for a family office. Uh, we have uh, internal office and retail capabilities, so we're generally the lead on those type of deals, and we do allocations on uh, other asset classes like storage, industrial, and multifamily. Uh, so we're all the time in all the deals that we do, there's a co-investment structure. Whether we're the lead, whether we're an LP, I generally like to control the whole capital stack. So even when we're uh, a limited partner, I call 
other co-investors and we try to fill the whole capital stack to, um, to have some more, a little bit more control there. Fantastic, thank you very much. Uh, so to us, a pretty diverse panel, which is great, always good. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, the first question I definitely wanna ask right off the bat um, is uh, what's the ideal type of asset or investment? You guys touch up a little bit on it, but if you guys can kind of just deep dive, uh, even share maybe some, some case studies or stories on what your ideal type of asset or investment or fund uh, that you're looking for right now. Like what would really stand out to you now um, out of this room, out of professionals uh, that have deals, uh, you know, what would you love to be sent your way uh, now that you're here investing your time in, in this panel? And uh, we'll, we'll start with uh, Janif. Sure, so um, I've, I've listened to other panels here before me as well, and I think you're gonna hear a recurring theme. We invest in people first, you know? It's the management team that uh, you believe in, that they can, you know, carry the business to success. So um, if we sort of crystallize the investment thesis, it's a, a strong management team that can inspire us, that are bringing a product that will change the standard of care. So we're not looking for something that's incremental. We're looking for th something that will change the behavior of doctors and physicians of the way the care system works in that specific field um, and in a large and growing market because only if you do that can you find opportunities that can end up being providing an exit and usually the exits in our field are provided by the large farmers that come in and buy those companies out so those are the kind of companies that we look to invest in fantastic thank you and um, actually just uh, if I can just get a quick show of hands anybody here in that space, raise of hands, nice and high, nice and high. Great, thank you. Go ahead, Juan. Yeah, I'll just add another point. I completely agree on the on the team. In fact, with the MIT network, that that what what we've seen is there's a lot of affinity between the alums. So you know, it's sometimes difficult for venture firms to even access some of the best faculty members, but because we have so many alums now in, that are engaged um, and some of them have worked for some of the top faculty members while they were in school completing their graduate studies, that type of relationship, that type of network really matter in early stage investing because early stage startups need a lot of help. And so the ability to recruit other team members, to add advisors, uh, to find your way to key customers and partners early is a network driven exercise. And our network have been able to help companies that way. Um, the second thing I'll say is that markets do matter as well because in a difficult market, even if you have the best teams, it's going to be pretty hard. Um, but in a really good market, when market timing's right and customers want the product, et cetera, even if the team is not an A-plus team, uh, there's a higher probability of success. So it's really a balance between market dynamics and market timing and the quality of the team. Hopefully good teams also have good market timing skills, but that's not always that's not always true. Um, well, I have a narrow focus. It's uh, real estate uh, across the board. And uh, as the other two co-panelists, I'm going to look at you know where the deal is coming from. Uh, we're very overwhelmed with deals. So the amount of time I can pay attention to a single deal coming in is who are you and where you're coming from. Uh, and unless it's extremely compelling and I don't know who you are, uh, you're, gonna, you're not going to get the attention. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is the deal itself, uh, if it makes sense, if it, you know, broadly um, underwrites, if you're sh showing me a 1970s apartment in Atlanta at more than $100,000 a door, I'm, 
I'm not going to look at it. Um, uh, and, and lastly, the structure is, is extremely important. If you send me a value-add deal with a three-year bridge loan that can't be serviced currently, um, I'm going to look first at your judgment, how you look at risk, and uh, lastly, if it's really a good deal, that's the reason why I mentioned I like to control the whole capital stack. I may tell you, look, let's do 50% or 40% down instead of 20%, and let's put a perm loan in it that we can then resize. And I come in and kind of restructure the deal for you. So um, uh, it, it's a pretty basic formula. Um, it's nothing complex. We're looking first for capital preservation, and then uh, yield, and then upside. So that's kind of the uh, how it trickles down in terms of uh, priorities. Great, and uh, and out of a show of hands, who would feel that, that that's relevant? You know what Carlos just said is, is relevant to them, and and what they have to offer. Fantastic. And how about for Juan, uh, MIT Angels, technology? What else? Can you expand a little bit more on like the set the verticals that you're looking for? Uh, again? Yeah, the ver the industries, companies. Yeah, with the MIT uh, group, it's really been a, a broad, I would say, a pretty broad set of uh, industries. Uh, we kind of broadly segment between hard tech, uh, which would include material science, hardware companies. We've even seen in a recent wave of space technology companies, you know, microsatellites, propulsion, even creating broadband networks in space to send data back to Earth. Um, and then the second bucket would be we saw sort of classic uh, capital efficient software and marketplaces type of companies, platform-based companies. And then the third part, which we've actually had to create a separate investment network dedicated to that is life sciences. So we do see a lot of licensed uh, intellectual property from the university, uh, professors that are creating uh, therapeutics, genomics, medical device, pharma type uh, 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 drugs and, and, and those kinds of innovations, which our technology investors like me were not able to properly assess. But the great thing about this network is the ability to diligence these very difficult scientific uh, technology and problems spaces. And so the, it's almost like a crowdsourced uh, intelligence that, that, that we have. Great, great. And, and once again, show of hands for, for Juan, if you feel that there's something in your bucket that's relevant there. Great, thank you. Um, so, um, as, as the director of charter membership, I, 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 who, raise your hand if we've spoken on the phone before, right? And I know that a lot of the questions I get is, um, you know, what stands out to them? You know, it's always about, you know, it's like, Andres, I want to come to the event, but really all they care about is that personal introduction. Can you, can you please introduce me to one of them? Um, but at the same time, uh, everything has to start with that initial introduction, whether it was brokered or, or whether you did it yourself. So I want to know a little bit more about what stands out to you as a marketer myself, as a, a professional salesperson myself, right? What, what stands out in that like initial hello, that first impression, uh, whether that's an email, whether that's a LinkedIn connection, whether that's coming here to a conference, right? I mean, you come to this conference to potentially source deals, right? So it's, so you're here because you see a possibility to invest in something in this room. So, but what stands out? What really catches your attention? And then also feel free to elaborate on like what definitely turns you off within the first 30 seconds of being introduced to someone or meeting someone. And we'll start with Carlos for this one. So what turns me off is long presentations with massive and very small font. I, uh, I really like some succinctness. You know, it's uh, what I do is fairly simple, so 
you know, income has to be more than the uh, expenses generally. Um, but today, actually, I, uh, I was talking to someone I've seen around this conference. Uh, there were a group of us, and uh, he was talking about microeconomics, and it was just fascinating. I mean, there was a group of four or five of us, and uh, he was not trying to sell anything. Um, but, it, the, and where I'm going with this is, is the talent, how you present yourself. And I have to come to this panel, thank goodness it was, it was late, because I, when I was leaving, he kind of started to say what he actually did. And we were all drawn and really wanted to understand, because the talent was so, you know, so you could see so much talent in him that it almost didn't really matter, you know, whether the deal was good or bad. We were, I'm going to evaluate whatever he's doing. Um, so it's, it's the team and it's the how, how you convey that message. Yeah, and I want to elaborate on that because that's, that's a big part of, of, of our company culture here, what Richard's built here, is that delivering value, delivering value, delivering value until someone is really just enticed to ask you, what is your offering? Tell me. Right? If you can get them to ask you first before you have to tell them, Right, that's that's really like your way in because they delivered value to you. Right, they were teaching you something, not trying to push something on you. There was nothing that they wanted in return. Uh, so I think that's that's important, and I want to elaborate on that because half of the conferences we host every year are workshops, and a lot of times I talk to a lot of our members, and they go, "That workshop's not relevant to me. I need to meet investors." But to learn how to communicate in a way that's engaging is really going to allow you to increase your conversion for getting those appointments. So. Yeah, and the opposite is always, you know, it, it happens a lot too. Like somebody asks me, what do you do? I go, oh, I do real estate. You don't do anything in life sciences? And they, literally, I see people turn around and leave. Uh, so, uh, you know, my family office does other things. Um, surely not with those people. But, you know, if you convey the message that this other person that we were talking to earlier, you know, really conveys just a lot of talent and something of value, I will figure out a way to get someone in front of him that understands what he's saying, you know? That's huge. You know, I think he, super valuable point, right? To deliver that value and you never know if, yes, he focuses on real estate, but he has a network of other individuals that can match potentially what you have going on, right? So that's, that's kind of what you're stating right there, right? It may not be relevant for you, but you may know the right person. Great. Juan, uh, what, on what stands out to you in that introduction? Yeah, I, I think um, uh, entrepreneurs that can convey their pitch in the sense that they can describe the future of their market and tell you why that future will be inevitable before they tell you about the solution. I think that that's compelling because VCs don't want to take market risk because markets are out of your control. You can't change the market. So you've got to be able to paint a vision of the future that's believable and then tell the investor why you're the best team or you've got the best proof point or the best technology to execute and realize that vision. So I usually advise entrepreneurs to take that kind of a flow in their pitch. And you do need to get it down to something very short because the attention span of the investor is very short. And by the way, when a partner goes around their firm to sell a company internally to their partnership to get support for an investment, when they first go to their partners in the firm and go door to door to their office, they only also have about 30 seconds to 60 seconds. So you've got to make it easy for the partner to sell that idea internally to their investment team. That's why it's important to keep it short. Great, thank you. Genev? So when I'm here at the conference, I actually I wear two hats. On the one hand, I'm looking for companies in which to invest. On the other hand, you know, we're looking for investors to invest in our fund. And I, I try to do and practice the same thing that I would hope other people do with me. And the first thing is I want them to find out from me 
if what they have is even within my, my area of interest. Because if all you do is real estate, then I'll let you have some time with somebody else to talk. And uh, so it's very important. I mean, we get pitches for movie screens in Mumbai, you know, and we don't do that. And if you don't realize that our name is Bio Angels, then <laughs> we don't, we probably won't respond to you. Um, so we do hope that somebody would take time to understand what our area of focus is. And then if really, if they're within the area of focus, that's great then they should submit an application to us because there are people who know more perhaps about the specific therapeutic area or whatever it is and that screening committee gets together on a regular basis to review all the applications so I want them to have the benefit of everybody in the room actually looking and doing the screening but at least figure out are you interested is this the right is this the focus area okay fantastic thank you um, so moving on a little bit more now to, to the technical side of, of the of the structure of the deal um, what is your team's preferred way to structure a deal that you wish more investment firms um, were open to offering in the marketplace in terms of the structure? I know we spoke a little bit, Juan, about kind of like your unique, you know, combination of structuring deals with the alumni at MIT. But what would you guys wish to see a little bit more in terms of the structure of the deal that's being presented to you? Um, so it, for us, it's, it's all about the end game. Uh, generally, um, uh, if I believe your assumptions, um, I'm going to structure the deal based not only on your assumptions, be, but to make sure that you do what you say that you're going to do. So, for example, on a multifamily deal, I don't do deals with people that are quote unquote vertically integrated because uh, I, I like to put in an additional layer of control, which is a third party property manager that has the checkbook. So, in the case something blows up, uh, they're going to sign something with me that they're going to listen to me. So now I have two people on the hook in that sense. Um, if we have an argument on valuation, my capital is coming up first, so I'm, 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 I'm preferred equity generally. Uh, if I bring the whole capital stack, I'm going to be a co-GP as well because I want to see exactly everything that you're doing. Uh, if I'm debt, I don't generally care. Uh, I just want to know that you're you have the ability to service it. So it really depends on the deal and, the, of course, the relationship that you have. I do invest passively on certain sponsors that have a phenomenal track record, uh, but uh, that's seldom the case. Uh, we generally like to have a control point uh, in the structure. Great. Thank you. Juan? I'll just quickly touch on the deal structure in terms of investing startups and then maybe quickly comment on the LP side too. Um, as far as startup investing goes, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about valuations these days being very rich. Um, I do see a big discrepancy between key markets like SF, New York, Boston, and then smaller markets where valuations are more reasonable. And I saw it firsthand last year when I invested in a company that was basically at a stage in terms of revenues, clearly can be a growth stage company, perhaps Series B or later, but they were raising at a valuation that's more typical of a seed, in other words, pre-Series A. Uh, companies. So I encourage everyone when you think about, uh, you know, geographies and money centers and activity concentration to look more broadly um, uh, around sort of deal terms. And, and look, I mean, part of the uh, part of the valuation increase been driven by Silicon Valley, right? You know, and it starts, and you can see it in early and late stages because early stages, you know, market making accelerators like Y Combinator 
have basically popularized a, a, a deal term called the safe, which is basically, you know, which is basically like the convertible note, except you don't get interest. So it's 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 probably the worst terms that investors have ever ever seen. But because they have so much market making power, uh, they basically made that kind of standardized, and more and more startups begin to adopt that. Um, so anyway, that's a quick comment on the the deal side with investing, and then on the LP side. You know, we, as a firm, have been, you know, mostly kind of a 2N20 type of model and also have offered SPV opportunities uh, for our LPs into our existing companies. So once we fully deploy the fund, uh, allowing LPs to then participate in the best deals in the portfolio and improve their net returns by paying lower fee and lower carry on these specific deals. Uh, so I think that for the right kind of investors, you know, in our firm, we'd be willing to offer those kinds of privileges and including co-investment rights and so forth. Excellent. Thank you. Jinev? So um, in the angel investment world, usually you get two options. Uh, one of them is a convertible note, uh, which comes in multiple flavors, yeah. safe being the worst one. Um, and then there is a price round. Um, we obviously prefer the price round because convertible note basically says, let's delay the discussion of what the actual value of the company is until later. And even when you put um, caps and when you basically put discounts to the conversions in future rounds, uh, we believe that usually you miss a lot of the early value when you go into a convertible note. Um, and so if we're leading the round, we would prefer to lead a priced round. Um, if we're joining in a round, by law, everybody has to get the same terms. So we basically are either comfortable or not comfortable with whatever terms are in it. We haven't done a safe. We hope to never do a safe. Great, great. Thank you. Uh, and um, for your co-GP deals, um, if you can share a little bit about how you structured that and, and a little bit more on the terms. So, Well, I invest in brick and mortar, which has a title. So most of the value is pretty much locked in. I mean, they can't sell the property and, and, um, and walk away with the money. Uh, as I said, I use third-party property management and uh, we keep a, s a small piece of the general partnership uh, in terms of the fees and we work on budgets that they have to meet so we have a lockbox and just follow the money uh, if they need more money for a certain reason they have to justify it and we we basically pull uh, from the lockbox and, and give them what they need but as, as long as, as as you're controlling that you're never gonna have to look at the documents how you structured it it's um, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, they told us they were going to do something, and we're going to make sure that, that that's the case, and that's how, how we operate. Great. Juan? Okay. So you mean our, like, our fund? In yeah. Terms of, yeah. So in terms of our fund, um, we've structured it in an interesting way where we there isn't an investment committee, and these are not separate deals that different people look at. These are the deals that we invest in that qualify for investment by the fund. And everything is automatic. There's absolutely no discretion on the, on the part of the management of the fund to make any decisions. So, uh, and, and the management fees are reduced to, to show that. Um, but what we do is the rules are all published ahead of time. And if, you know, if at least certain amount of investors invest at least certain amount of money, or one of our pools goes in, the fund automatically co-invests as long as certain rules are, other rules are met. For instance, it, it, the fund is not allowed to invest more than 20% of its entire capital in any one company because we want to make sure there's diversification. The fund must have the same terms from the company that we receive. So it's not like we're getting a special deal and the fund gets screwed 
for different terms. So only if the fund gets the exact same terms can the fund co-invest. So we made it complete you know, on parity, uh, and all the rules are ahead of time so that either the checkbox are checked or they're not, and, and the, the investment is either automatic yes or an automatic no. Great. And um, the next question I want to ask before I start asking the audience questions is, um, do you see any addi additional trends within your industry uh, coming uh, that, are, that are on its way that we haven't really discussed here today? I mean, on the family office space, I'm, I'm seeing more and more family offices build their own uh, expertise, bringing in people like they brought me in. Um, I'm basically a, just a real estate guy that's hired by a family office, so I'm seeing that more and more often. Juan? Um, maybe less on the LP side for me because I'm just starting to get to know LPs. Um, uh, on the startup side and trends, industry trends that we've been observing, we've been developing a couple of new thematic areas that we like to focus on and we'll have an adaptive thesis where we dynamically observe market patterns to develop new thesis. But we definitely have seen a couple of themes that are, are emerging and one is around the data supply. Uh, the fact that you know, data is a new oil. right? Companies that can access proprietary data start the clock early on machine learning and training and doing predictive analysis um, eventually can improve productivity by certain verticals and workflows. You know, these companies are going to be huge. You know, they're going to be um, significant leaders in, in, in industries. And we've seen it across multiple domains. That pattern is true across, you know, medical data, for example. Uh, we invested in a company that does analysis of pathology uh, images. And um, very quickly, they exceeded the uh, performance and the accuracy rates of human pathologists um, using machine learning on, on data. And so the, the earlier you start the clock, the more proprietary and partnership-based access to data you can have early, those are some of the data network effect characteristic we look for in companies going after the data economy. So that's certainly a trend we're, we're paying attention to. Great, thank you. I think there's trends in terms of valuations that keep going up and down in terms of the companies and stuff like that. I mean, Boston companies have a very rich valuation. Um, New York is n is, isn't there yet, fortunately, but they're trying to get there. Uh, so there, but those things are, are cyclical and they go up and down depending on, on the availability of money and of and how the wind blows in terms of people's interest in the specific asset classes. Great, thank you. Uh, so we'll take this uh, now to getting some questions from the audience. Let's make sure to project. doesn't come up for us much, no. I mean, for us, valuations need to be reasonable. They need to be um, backed up by enough uh, information, enough history for them to make sense. And you don't want your valuation to be too high because if you, if you say, if you come in with a really high valuation and we like your company, we'll say, you know what, fine. We'll give you that valuation, but we want a down round protection. And if there is a down round, which means you cannot raise uh, uh, the next round at a higher valuation, you're going to raise at a lower valuation. We, by us getting protection, we would end up getting much more than if you came in with a reasonable valuation in the first round to begin with. So 
it makes a lot more sense to just have something that makes sense. And, and looking at the exit, there needs to be a reasonable return that you get, can get based on the valuation that you're currently looking at. So it all, it all has to make sense from that perspective. If we can, we'd like to, but all the, when, we like, when you invest in life sciences, the, win, the shortest window we usually invest in is five years. So we expect that almost anything that we look at will be five to seven, eight years, et cetera. So we're almost always in that bucket to begin with. Great, thank you. Another question from the audience? In the West Coast, you can walk into certain cafes at a certain time of the day and by lunchtime end up with, with money and deals and everything. <laughs> you can't do that in the East Coast. You know, it's a big country and we're still different. And in the West Coast, I think, in my opinion, which is not professional in that sense, it was made so you could make a quick deal happen. Let's just forget about all the details. Let's just make a deal. Here we care a lot, a lot about the details. The problem is when you take a regular convertible note and you begin to put in all the investor protections into it, at that point it becomes almost a price round type of document, which is what you wanted to save all the money by going into a convertible note to begin with, and you spend all that time and effort in, in legal fees, etc. So might as well have a price round if you can. Fantastic. Here in the front. We really don't invest in anything other than therapeutics, devices, and diagnostics. So we know that there'll be digital something that will come with our devices and diagnostics in the future to collect data, to do other things with it. But if it's purely that, we won't invest in it because it's a low IP area and it ends up being not only pure execution, but it's who you know and the kind of relationships that you can, you can create and how sticky they are, which will determine how successful you're going to be in those specific spaces. And we don't feel qualified to be able to figure out if you're the right person to do it in those markets, which we don't understand. Fantastic. I have time for one more. Uh, Ma'am? Uh, sorry, I was pointing at the lady. Apologies. Uh, 
Um, the best I, way I to reach have out. have uh, Juan start with this one. As far as the MIT network is concerned, we do have a dedicated life sciences uh, investment group, and there we actually have put up an application form on the website. We do actually review everything that comes in. Um, so the best thing is probably fill out the form or just reach out to one of us. We have a screening committee specifically dedicated to life sciences and a whole track of events specific to that. So ha Happy to look at it, yeah. yeah. So for us, go to the website, look at our investment criteria, make sure that you're a fit. If you are, fill in the application. Applications are reviewed on a monthly basis by a screening committee. We get back to every company. We tell the companies why not, even you know, if we don't invite them to present, just in case we're wrong, just in case we can come back in the future and correct it in some way, et cetera. Fantastic. Well, so um, before I uh, lead the panelists off the stage, uh, if we can just remember uh, when we leave the room, if we can try to take like an extra 20 steps away from the door. Uh, and then other than that, if we can please give a round of applause for our three